Our scripture reading tonight is from Psalm 24. Uh, We've heard it already in our call to worship. We have just sung it, in fact, twice in that uh, psalm that we just sang and in that hymn from Charles Wesley, There for him, high triumph waits, lift your heads, eternal gates. He has conquered death and sin, take the king of glory in. Uh, Psalm 24 is a psalm that the early church understood as prophetic of Christ's ascension. Uh, The history of Christian hymnody reflects that in hymns like that one from Wesley, another one that we'll sing later, or um, Handel's Messiah, where Christ's ascension is depicted in the language of Psalm 24. And so we'll read that psalm now on this ascension day, Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Beloved, the uh, title of this sermon is the question of verse 3, who may ascend God's holy hill? A question that we are to read in the context of verses 1 and 2 of this psalm, where we see that uh, the God of whom that question speaks is the one to whom the earth belongs, uh, the world and all who dwell in it. He is the creator of verse 2, who founded the, the earth upon the seas and established it upon the waters. He is the one who existed before anything and everything else who created the world, upholds it by his power, and owns it. He's the subject of verses 1 and 2. And so having given us this glorious image of the creator God to whom all the earth belongs, the question is then asked in verse 3, how can we enter into his presence? How can anyone enter into the presence of this great God? The holy hill is the place where he dwells in Old Testament terms, the the temple or tabernacle, which um, Hebrews tells us are images, earthly pictures of the true dwelling place of God in heaven. 
And so it's asking, is it possible for me or anyone to enjoy fellowship with the God who dwells in heaven? Is it possible for me to enter into his presence? That's the question that concerns Psalm 24. One commentator has called it the most important question you could ever ask. What does God require of me? If God exists, which he does, and heaven is real, which it is, then what must I do to get there? What must I do to enjoy fellowship with this God who made not only me, but all the earth? This is the question of Psalm 24, a question that every one of us faces and every one of us must answer. What kind of person will God admit into his presence in heaven? And as we think about this question, the answer that the law gives is that you must be holy as the Lord your God is holy. I believe Leviticus says that some six different times, and that is essentially the same thing that this psalm says, as it sort of summarizes that theology of of Leviticus and the rest of the law in verses 4 and 5. This God of verses 1 and 2 is absolutely pure and holy, and so those who would come into his presence must be holy also. For our God, Deuteronomy and Hebrews tell us, is a consuming fire, and no sin may dwell in his presence. I heard it illustrated this way. If you're you're having a barbecue, and you spill some sauce on your shirt, uh, that sauce will stain. Uh, The sauce will, will render you unclean. But if that same sauce were to fall onto the burning coals in the barbecue, it will not make them unclean, but those burning coals will uh, burn up the sauce. You see, in a similar way, uh, when sin comes into God's presence, he doesn't get dirty like your shirt, but his holiness consumes your sin like those coals. That's why those who come into his presence must be holy for their own good. We must be clean and pure if we would come before him. Otherwise, his holiness would consume us in our sin. And so the psalm describes for us then four dimensions of this holiness that God demands. It speaks of cleanness of hands, pureness of heart, trueness of tongue. And all of this proceeds from a soul that does not lift itself up to what is false. So this first, cleanness of hands. This obviously is is speaking of our actions, the things that we do, the things that we use our our hands, our members to do. We confess that our hands are not clean, but our hands have been stained by the violence that they have caused every time, boys and girls, that you hit your brother or sister. Every time that we have stolen things that do not belong to us, our hands have been stained by the images that we have clicked or the harsh words that we have typed. All of these things render our hands unclean. They are stained by our sin. And therefore unable to come into God's holy presence. And the next requirement that the psalmist speaks of is pureness of heart. 
Meaning, if you think that you pass that first step, having clean hands, then you actually deceive yourself because being clean on the outside is not enough. Jesus makes that very clear in his condemnation of the Pharisees, who he calls whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, but filthy within. Our thoughts, intentions, motives, and desires, all of those must be clean also. And so it's not enough simply not to commit adultery or not hit my brother or sister or not send that angry text, but I must not even think it. I must not hate my brother in my heart. I must not desire my neighbor's wife. That's the point that Christ makes all throughout Matthew chapter 5. As he takes the law and applies it to the heart, to our anger and hatred and lust. Or you can think about the positive commands of of giving and praying that we see in a place like Matthew 6. Jesus says that I must do these things not to be seen by men, not to earn the approval of others, not to advance my own glory or to be well thought of, but my heart in all that I do must be pure. In fact, earlier in that same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. And he says that they will see God. They are the ones who will ascend into God's presence on his holy hill, those who are pure in heart. And the pure in heart, uh, those with clean hands, must also have trueness of tongue, not swearing deceitfully, but our, our pureness of heart must flow out of our heart and out through our lips. That's what Christ says in Matthew 15, out of the mouth comes the overflow of the heart. And so if your heart is pure, then your words will be true. But if your heart is filled with impurity, then your lips and your tongue will lie. Holding back the whole truth, telling half-truths, and then salving our conscience by, by hair-splitting that makes us think we didn't technically lie. Uh, This verse in the psalm is calling us to put away all deceit, all half-truths, all misleading and exaggeration, all gossip and slander, all outright lies, which include not only the words that we speak with our tongues, but our written words, our texted words, our emailed words. God requires that anyone who would enter into his holy place be truthful. Cleanness of hands, Pureness of heart, trueness of tongue, all of which proceed from a soul that does not lift itself up to what is false. If you were to to keep on reading in the Psalms the way that they're meant to be read as a canon moving from one Psalm to the next, if you were to to keep on reading past this Psalm to the next one, Psalm 25, you would see, and I believe the very first verse of that Psalm, that lifting up your soul to something means placing your trust in it. David will say in Psalm 25, verses 1 and 2, I lift up my soul and I trust in you, O my God. And so the heart that is pure, the tongue that is true, the hands that are clean belong to the soul that does not lift itself up to an idol, believing the lie that anything other than God will be able to satisfy. You understand how when you lie, when you have a tongue that is not true, it is because you are placing your trust in an idol, believing that if the person to whom you lie does not learn the truth about you, then you'll have peace. 
Boys and girls, when you hit your brother or sister, or, or when you steal that cookie, or, or uh, when, you, when you click that image, you are lifting up your soul to what is false, believing that the food you steal or the image that you lust after or the anger that you aim at your brother or sister will satisfy you in a deeper way than God. Our dirty hands, our impure hearts, our double tongues reveal that our souls, as Calvin said to to sort of paraphrase him, that our souls are idol-making factories. That we lift up our souls to created things and not to God. And therefore, we may not enter into his presence. Because heaven is a holy place. The Lord of heaven is a holy being. The angels are holy creatures. J.C. Ryle said, holiness is written on everything in heaven. And so we must be holy if we would ascend the hill of the Lord. That's the basic message of verse 4. That's that's the basic message of the law. That those who do not meet this holy standard may not enter in to God's holy heaven. If you do not have clean hands and a pure heart, if you do not have trueness of tongue, but lift up your soul to what is false, then the answer to the question of verse 3 is not you. That's the law's crushing answer. And yet, to our astonishment, the psalm does not end there. We would think no one can enter in, I guess, the Lord who is, who is high and holy, the, the Lord of verses 1 and 2 who dwells in unapproachable light to whom the earth and the fullness thereof belong, the world and all who dwell in it. I guess he cannot have a human in his presence, but is so separate from the ones he creates that no one can enter into his presence. That's, that's basically the message that Job's friends tell him over and over in the book of Job. He is so holy, no one can enter his presence, so be quiet. And it almost seems to be the, the message that verse 4 implies. But to our shock and amazement, the psalm goes on. And, and as it goes on, it, it proceeds to say in verse 7, lift up your heads, you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, implying that someone is entering in. Someone is coming into God's presence. That's why the gates are being opened. And who could it be? Who is this king of glory who has clean hands and a, a pure heart and a true tongue who has never, ever once in his life lifted up his soul to what is false? Who could it be? It is the king. The same king who we meet in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, who at this point in the Psalter has just been mentioned in Psalm 22 and Psalm 23, the king of glory about whom the whole book of the Psalms is written, who the New Testament testifies did have clean hands. Hebrews 4.15, he was wholly harmless and undefiled. He didn't use his hands to serve himself, but rather to serve us, letting them be pierced who did have a pure heart. In fact, he is the embodiment of that righteous ethic in the Sermon on the Mount. He is the pure of heart who will see God, whose righteousness, Matthew 5, 17, surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, who who is full of grace and truth, John chapter 1, 
And because his heart is pure, and because he is full of grace and truth, his lips did not swear deceitfully, but 1 Peter 2 says, no deceit was ever found in his mouth. And he didn't lift up his soul to an idol, but the the very next verse in 1 Peter 2 says he entrusted himself to God. He did not entrust himself to an idol, to what is false, he entrusted himself to God. The Davidic king to whom this this whole collection of the Psalms points, and especially this mini collection in Psalms 22 through 24, is the one who alone meets these requirements. And therefore, verse 5 receives blessing from the Lord and righteousness, or we we could translate that justification from the God of his salvation. That's what the resurrection and ascension are. They are God's um, justification, his declaring righteous, his son. 1 Timothy 3.16, Christ was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by the angels, and preached among the Gentiles. Paul there in 1 Timothy 3 speaks of Christ's resurrection and ascension as his justification. His vindication, God declaring him to be righteous. Voss called it God's de facto declaration of Christ being just. And so he is the one who is able to enter into God's holy presence and receive blessing from the Lord, verse 5. Remember that blessing comes from God's presence. Number six associates it with God's face shining upon his people. The the righteous one who fulfills the requirements of verse four will enter into God's presence, verse three, and will receive blessing from it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The everlasting doors of the eternal dwelling place of God will open, verse 7, because Christ was holy, harmless, and undefiled. J.C. Ryle said, without holiness on earth, we shall not be prepared for heaven. Christ was prepared. And so he enters in. He enters in through those everlasting doors, which tells us that this is speaking of more than just the tabernacle or the temple or the city gates, but is speaking of entrance into heaven. Christ is the one who will enter. By the way, you notice that um, those singular pronouns in, in verses four and five. It's worth noting the psalmist does not say those who have clean hands and a pure heart, they will receive blessing from the Lord, but he says he masculine singular. This psalm, like Psalm 1 or Psalm 15, was only ever about one man, the ultimate Davidic king who would delight in God's law, who would walk uprightly and therefore dwell in God's holy hill. He will enter in. And so we read of the king's glorious ascent in verses 7 to 10, what Spurgeon called a little picture of our Lord's glorious ascent, revealing to us that great representative man who answered to the full character laid down in verse 4 of this psalm, and therefore, by his own right, ascended Zion's holy hill. Spurgeon says we see him rising in these verses from amidst that little group on the Mount of Olives and as the cloud receives him, we hear the angels reverently escort him into the gates of heaven. We read in Luke and Acts 
Luke 24, Acts chapter 1, of Christ's departure from earth to heaven. But here we read of his arrival in heaven. What no man witnessed, but scripture here records for us prophetically to show us the glory of this one who heaven welcomes with shouts of praise. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. As we sang, he has conquered death and sin. The divine warrior has returned to his dwelling place and he is victorious. We'll sing another hymn later on. See the conqueror mounts in triumph. See the king in royal state riding on the clouds his chariot to his heavenly palace gate. Who is this that comes in glory, trumpet sound with jubilee, Lord of battles, Lord of armies. He has gained the victory. He who on the cross did suffer, he who from the grave arose, he has conquered sin and Satan. He by death has beat his foes. Do you hear how the church in the history of its hymnody has rightly understood this psalm and verse 8 in particular as speaking of Christ's victory over sin and death through dying on the cross and rising up to heaven? He fought a bitter war against sin at the cost of his own blood, at the cost of his own life, but in his death defeated death. And Colossians 2 disarmed Satan and all his demonic powers, making an open spectacle of them at the cross. And now returns a victor and is welcomed with shouts of heavenly praise. The blood of conflict still fresh upon him. He takes his seat on the heavenly throne. The angels greet him with songs of praise, somewhat like we read in Revelation. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He ascends to take his seat on the throne and all his heavenly subjects pay homage. The king has returned from battle, a victor, and he takes his seat on the throne. If you'll uh, permit me another Lion King illustration, one theologian compares uh, this to the final scene in that movie where after returning to Pride Rock to battle his wicked uncle for the throne and, and Simba conquers Scar and all of, all of his armies, his work remains incomplete Until after the battle, he ascends to the top of Pride Rock, the rightful place of the ruler, and ritually demonstrates that he has conquered. And all the lions acknowledge his victory and dominion and authority. That is something like what's going on here. The victor is ascending to the top of the mountain, God's holy hill, as king. So lift up your heads, ye gates, and lift up, you everlasting doors, that the king of glory may come in. And yet notice how that's repeated uh, once again in verse 9, and then verse 10 asks again, who is this king of glory? It asks that same question a second time which may uh, just be for, for repetition in order to give a bit of emphasis But it's interesting that a different answer appears to be given in verse 10 when that question is asked a second time. 
This time, it is not the Lord strong and mighty coming in, victorious in battle alone, but is the Lord of hosts. Slightly different answer. This could just be part of the poetry. It could just be repetitive emphasis, but it may also be hinting that this king of glory enters Zion twice. The first time as the mighty victor who takes his seat on the throne, but the second time as the Lord of hosts. A commentator, James Johnston, says the hosts are his army, which seems to give the picture here of Christ as a great king with rank upon rank of warriors following behind him. This second shout in verse 10 says Spurgeon identifies him at the front of his people. Meaning this psalm, um, this psalm of ascent is, is not just for him, but also for us. Athanasius speaks of this psalm. Uh, he said that it speaks of our ascent in him and with him. Which I think is also hinted at in verse 6. Where even though only one man, that singular he of verse 4, keeps God's law and receives blessing from the Lord... In that very next verse, we see a whole generation of people receiving blessing with him and seeking God's face, that is, entering his presence. You see that shift in in verses 4 and 5 from a singular he to verse 6, a whole generation. And that shift in verse 8 from a king entering alone to verse 10, a king with an army entering behind him. This is why Ascension Day is, is such a big deal. Because as we already read from Lord's Day 18, Christ is there for us as a sure pledge that he will take us, his members, to be in God's presence also. He is our head, question answer 49. And we see something of that in Psalm 24 where he enters into heaven, yes, to take his throne, but also so that human flesh might make its way into heaven. One church father said his ascension makes a pathway for us so that in due time he might come again in glory to take us up with him. He says our, our ascension is, or his ascension is our elevation where human flesh penetrates the heights of heaven. Do you see how wonderfully this answers that question of verse 3? Who may enter into heaven to commune with the creator of the universe? Those with clean hands and a pure heart, a true tongue. It is Christ. But also those who are united to him by faith, joined to their head and king as faithful subjects of his army, given his righteousness, verse 5, as a gift that they might be among that generation of verse 6 who seek God's face and one day, verse 10, enter in through the gates of that heavenly city with their heavenly king. And what enables them to do this, what enables us to do this, is because though only his hands were clean, he allowed those clean hands to be pierced on a cross. And although only his tongue was true, he was condemned a liar and a blasphemy. He was given gall and vinegar in his mouth on the cross. He was condemned on the cross. Though his heart was pure, he bore our sin on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us 
so that united to him by faith, we might be reckoned as righteous in Christ, our champion, no longer crushed by those demands of the law, but lifted up into heavenly places, which his ascension guarantees. This is why the ascension is such good news. This is why the church has celebrated it as one of its five evangelical feast days for the last 2,000 years. This is why we're gathered here tonight to hear this good news, God's answer to life's most important question, how can I enter into God's presence? And the only answer is through being united by faith to the righteous and holy one of verse 4, who is the king of glory of verses 7 to 10. He entered in, and by faith, we enter in with him. Close with a line from Spurgeon. He said, it's it's possible that as you read this psalm or as you hear it preached tonight, you, you say to yourself, I will never enter into God's heaven, for I have neither clean hands nor a pure heart. Spurgeon says, look then to Christ who has already climbed the hill, has entered in as the forerunner of those who trust in him, follow his footsteps and repose upon his merit. He rides triumphantly into heaven and you shall too if you trust in him. A trust in his obedience by which he becomes the righteous one of verse four. Trust in his death by which he becomes the victor of verse 8. Trust in God's declaration of him as righteous in his ascent into glory, which is yours too by faith. Who shall ascend God's holy hill? Christ the King. And all who are righteous in him by faith who have confessed their inability to meet that high standard of verse 4, but believe that Christ did and then was stricken for your transgression and then raised up to heavenly heights for you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, those last two words for you, for us, And as we read earlier from Lord's Day 18, that he ascends there for us or on our behalf. Lord, we thank you that Christ, the Holy One, has entered into your presence. We pray that every one of us who are gathered here tonight may be among that number of that generation in verse 6, that army of verse 10, following in the footsteps of our king, following behind him in the the cloud trail that he leaves. Lord, may we follow him by faith. May we rejoice in this most amazing news, the ascension of the king, the ascension of the holy one, the ascension of human flesh into heaven, which is no mere afterthought to the gospel, not a mere exclamation point on the resurrection, but the very completion of redemption. Human flesh, which was rightly cast out of your presence in the fall of Adam and enabled to enter back in by grace because of our champion who conquered Satan, sin, and death. Lord, may we glory in his victory. May we ascribe to him honor and may we rejoice not only tonight but every day in our ascended king, the king of glory, Jesus Christ. 